Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian literature for the inebriated. I'm Matt Garrisonovich, PhD student in Russian Lit. This week I have really nothing exciting to share. I've been on the grind doing my job, as I should be doing every other week. But this is the first <laughs> one where I've done it, so hey. Sure, sure. Well, we all get there eventually. Yeah, I've been like grading. Ugh. Oh, ah. gross. Just fail them all. Send them back. <laughs> Just fail them all. Another year. That's the first life lesson. Sometimes mm-hmm. you have to deal with bureaucrats who are not willing to, uh, <laughs> who are out to get you and are not willing to negotiate on the matter. I can't wait to become a bureaucrat someday. <laughs> well, you can start now. I'm Cameron Lalana. Uh, this week I have finally, I've, I've got to go outside and give a 21 gun salute. Mm-hmm. I'm sure my neighbors will all be really happy with that to a car I've had since I was 16, since I'm finally replacing it. Since I'm driving about 80 miles, well, 80 miles each way per my commute each day, I decided perhaps I should finally stop killing the environment and get a hybrid um, and also killing my wallet with the cost of um, driving that much. So mm-hmm. I've got to go pour one out directly into my engine right? and uh, and send it off into the great, you know, uh, I, I presume car heaven. I don't know where cars go when they die. They go to the farm upstate where, gr- where grandma went with with the dog. Remember? <laughs> oh, right, right. I'm going to take it out behind the shed and just put two two shotgun blasts in the engine and leave it there. Well, that's what happens on the farm. Right, yeah. <laughs> that's what happened to poor old grandma. Uh. <laughs> okay, well, what <laughs> what is this? What is this, Matt, before we keep oh, going in this direction? Right. And before we continue on with the episode, we just wanted to extend a quick thank you to our newest patron, who has a name which is... Uh, in competition for one of my favorites, along with Banana Karenina, Nell Nell Cool J. <laughs> uh, Nell Nell Cool J, thank you for uh, helping support the podcast and letting us do what we do at the rate we do. Uh, we really appreciate your support. All right, on with the show. This is a podcast about Russian literature. I have me, myself, Matt Garasimovich. I have my friend Cameron Lalana. We're going to talk about Russian literature. We're going to have maybe a drink or two. We're talking about War and Peace, book four, part two. Mm-hmm. It's going to be good. If you've enjoyed what, talking high-level tactics this whole time, you're going to love this part. You are going to you are gonna love it. Just eat it up. Just. <laughs> That's you eating it up. Matt was so invested. He was like just grabbed a fistful of it, put the whole fist in his yep. mouth. That's how much he wanted yep. to gobble it up. Yep, yep, yep. Shell and all. So, <laughs> well, after investing all this time reading War and Peace, you probably want to make sure that you're getting the most out of your reading. That's why you need to head on over to patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy, where we post your reading guide for each episode. That includes quick commentary on major quotes and themes, plus once per month during the series, we're hosting a Patreon-only reading group to discuss everything we didn't get to on the show. Hear me out. We only have one more of these reading groups left, so you're hearing this in time to still join and make it for the very last reading group, which we will do at some point, probably next month. (laughs) <laughs> depends on whether or not i pass my exams we'll see yeah that's an important one that's an important right. one we're dedicated to the podcast maybe not dedicated enough for matt to torpedo his uh as master is this your bat are these comps for your masters or is this yeah. just for no, okay f- for the phd yeah. for the oh for the yeah. phd itself all right you already passed that right i might still torpedo you don't know i do it for <laughs> you dear listener <laughs> Well, you know, go on ahead and sign up for Tipsy for the Tipsy Tolstoy Patreon. So once Matt torpedoes his uh, PhD career, he's got a form of income. <laughs> Please. <laughs> but if you're not interested in Patreon, I understand. And if you still want to help your favorite boys out, you can leave us a nice review 
on Apple Podcasts or sign up for our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. Maybe one day we will see the revival of our email list. Right, yeah. Uh, Matt, I got to ask you, before we get into it, bringing anything to the table? Any drinks? Yeah, I'm bringing in elderflower tonic water to the Ooh, table Okay. to drink tonight because uh, last night at 3 a.m., I don't know what was banging in my house. Something sure. was making a large, loud noise. I thought somebody was trying to break into my house just intermittently. <laughs> uh, my dog, my attack dog, nowhere to be found. N- no interest in this kerfuffle. So I was, you know, with a flashlight <laughs> sleuthing my way around my house only to find out it was just my furnace contracting, uh, probably ready to blow up. Who knows? Right. It sounds like well, that's what you want. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, to add insult to injury, when I came back, my dog was sleeping on my pillow like an asshole uh and then after being awake all night i had to get up early to take him to the vet so this is a long way of saying if i added any beer or alcohol to the mix i might fall asleep mid-podcast that is extremely fair mm-hmm. uh well so I'll, i i would say i'm gonna drink for both of us but i have found the one uh irish stout in the world which is actually fairly low abv i have with me today the pugilist by society or Societe. It's spelled society spelled with an e on the end instead of y. The Sayate Brewing Company, That's which fancy. is a dry Irish stout. Yeah, it was uh, on sale at my local Sprouts. So, and I think it's a local brewery, and uh, it's got a fun little little uh, guy with his fisticuffs up. All right, how's it taste? It tastes it tastes like an Irish dry stout. I'm not a huge fan All of right. Irish dry stouts on the whole, but this it's it's fine. It's it's better than a Guinness. It's got more flavor. But that is a ringing endorsement. It's fine. <laughs> I won't get too much into my opinions on Guinness, but beyond that, it's it's fine. It's good. They also have one called The Student or something like that. Maybe I'll bring that next time. Well, okay, so let's talk about the sort of capture, sort of, I and I, I very much lean on the word here, sort of, running of Moscow by the French. Mm-hmm. Book four, part two. Last part, we had a strong emphasis on our characters. Uh, Helena dies, Andre dies, Maria and Natasha sort of make up well at least they have a cordial relationship while our friend andre is dying pierre is uh, (laughs) has a spiritual crisis after he watches a lot of people uh get shot which actually i want to come back to that eventually maybe when we do our wrap-up episode i want to come back to that because i want i had more thoughts about it over the course of the week about the systems which uh conspired to lead to this the the execution but anyhow so while that's all happening i kind of you know, just yeah. want to say, like, I kind of want to come back to it because as we've been doing these, I feel like I can't talk about things because we haven't gotten to the ending. Right. And so I feel like the first half of the series, I like, I got a lot that I want to say, but then I can't really. And so I kind of want to make episodes or a few episodes where it's just like quicker thematic based things about War and Peace or about longer, you know, novels or whatever. Yeah. I think that'd be helpful to go over once we have a, the long view of these things. It would be nice. Right. So what we have here, we start off in with uh, returning to the <laughs> part one, laying out the, the the thesis, if you will, for this part, which more or less is just, again, we tend to understand history as something which is done by particular individuals who command it to be such. But really, it was it was not. It was a confluence of all of these events and individual desires and people all together coming to create a not random outcome, but an outcome which was not controlled, certainly. In this case, uh, applied um, to what happens follows after the burning of Moscow, which is at which point the 
uh, Imperial Russian military re- begins to push back against the French successfully uh, as the French are retreating. So, uh, as he argues, you know, it's it's understood to be a stroke of genius that we began pushing them back. But really, at that point, the morale, the will of the army had kind of already been broken. So you could have done nothing, as I'll get more into in, the, in part three. But uh, he, he expounds on this point for a couple parts, talking about how the war between the Imperial Russian military and the French was inevitable, at least war is the wrong word. The battle after the abandonment of Moscow was inevitable because uh, the, all these forces pushed all the individual desire to fight, um, this sense of rallying, the morale boosting, all this is happening. Kutuzov is trying to hold people back, but you know many of these fights go forward despite himself and his his desires. But even even when he at one point he notes after again the the after the French retreat, even sometimes when Kutuzov gives in and tries to give the order, the the order doesn't even entirely go through. But the battle happens anyway because of the the desires of the individuals involved, with especially on the ground level. Following this point. Uh, we kind of again. This is a really, really conceptual part. I, you know, a lot of what we'll be talking about before we get about halfway through. We're talking about generals, uh, the toll of Napoleon, um, talking about how Napoleon acted not only in Moscow but following Moscow, uh, and the debate of historians of whether or not you know his faculties were working at their full strength in or following Moscow, um, and and, the, and uh, Tolstoy's various problems with that. I mean, Tolstoy having a problem with a historian, who would have thought? Tolstoy has a problem with everybody. <laughs> he's got yeah. a problem with you, with me, with you listening. Right, He's got yeah. a problem with you. He's, he's coming out of his grave just to hunt us down. He's actually, the reason that history departments are declining is because from beyond the grave, he's willing this to happen. <laughs> <laughs> he's hunting down historian graduate students. That one by one, Leo Tolstoy, history hunter. <laughs> Briefly, we follow Napoleon's attempt to impose a French order on Moscow, and he has this elegant sense that everything he does makes the city work exactly how he wants it. However, as you go down to the individual level, you find it really has, at best, no effect, or even sometimes the opposite effect, which is, again, carrying through, this is not a unique feature of Napoleon, of him saying, oh, Napoleon wasn't actually as good as he thought he was. It's Tolstoy trying to say, no one is this good. All right, Rostopchin, before the city was banned, tried to do the exact same thing to the exact same effect. The city itself, how it acted, had little to no relationship to the actual orders given by the government. And it continues such under the uh, French order, which continues up until the, the French decide to leave the city of Moscow. This is after the burning of the city. Uh, and, and when that's happening, we join our, our friend Pierre who continues to live in the shed with with the other Russian prisoners, and as they as they begin to move out, things are changing. Um, you know, Pierre is, has gotten used to a sort of he and the other prisoners have gotten used to a sort of friendliness with the guards, but as they're starting to move out, that all goes away. Um, you know, even the even the guards who've been relatively nice before are turning into difficult um, pr- uh, 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 not guardians. Um, I'm trying to think of the actual word. I just keep thinking of corrections officer. Uh, well, they are. Yeah. Well, yeah. They work. Yeah, the corrections officers. They are. They yeah, are COs. Parole officer there. <laughs> prison guard. They they turn into the prison guards. I don't know. I could not remember that word. Uh, it's not even like a specialized word. It's just literally <laughs> it's describing not. what they do. <laughs> <laughs> you can see uh, them operating a hundred percent of my brain right now. That's right. Full brain power, baby. <laughs> Someone who guards a prison. What could you call them? <laughs> um, 
Well, that's, I guess it's a shed. But so they move on outward and it, things are getting rough. A lot of prisoners are being, uh, you know, beaten or left behind or even executed as they go. There's this sort of change that comes over Pierre, even more so than after happened with the execution. And he starts talking about this it, it again that's following him. And we'll discuss that a little bit more later on. It's death. It's death. Oh, well, yeah, it is death. It's, I guess it's not that deep, but yeah, so it's following him. Um, he, <laughs> we leave Pierre this part as they're on the road, uh, just laughing to himself on the side, <laughs> 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 laughing himself to sleep, which is the sign of, um, I think he's really doing well after spending months in this prison uh, shed. Uh, and from this part on, we follow, uh, you know, a general is sent out in order to just kind of harry the French army. Uh, in a nearby city. I wish I'd written it down. I forget what city it is, but I think I want to say it's um, Formansk. And when he gets there, expecting only a single general, he finds that at this point, uh, after uh, Napoleon has left Moscow and a great number of those generals and other troops have actually retreated to Formansk, this area and or, or beyond, uh, they confirm that through various uh, spies, through some French officers they've captured. And they said, we have to tell them. And, and then it begins this or we have to tell the leadership, and that begins a big multi-chapter part of just trying to get the notes up to <laughs> Gattuzov. Literally, it's like five parts about trying to send the courier out, and the courier trying to find someone, and literally trying to get the the aides to wake this guy up, and him slowly understanding before they this guy is like, oh, this is important, let me take it to Gattuzov, and that it's a long process, um, which you know, of course, makes it, it heightens the ridiculousness of uh, of how important this news is. And then it takes some number of days to, to be conveyed and not and not least of all days that are caused by people just halting things because they can, because that's what they do to some degree. I, I like this book because I think when you tell people you read it, uh, first of all, nobody cares. But second of <laughs> all, when you get to the end, you're kind of thinking like, all right, it's like 1200 whatever pages, surely. Tolstoy wrote about, you know, the whole thing. It's this great comprehensive look at this war. And you realize when he spends like 30 pages and someone trying to deliver a message that, oh, no, we haven't even gotten to any of it. <laughs> we actually know almost less than when we started. <laughs> just like if you say the child marriage part that doesn't describe one part of the book, if you just say the part where they're just trying to deliver a letter that also does not describe a single part. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, but that's that's basically what happens in the, in the last half of this book. It, finally, the letter gets to Kutuzov, who realizes what's going on and realizes the importance of what's happening. And he's like, oh, thank God we're saved. Um, after Which helps him pull him out of his own kind of spiral since he's been dealing with these what-ifs for days now. And uh, even though he tries to, as I mentioned earlier, start trying to hold the army back, realizing that the French army is basically just going to, uh, it's already retreating, so there's no reason to waste lives and resources on something that's already happening. Of course, because history acts independently, the will of individuals, that happens anyway, as orders are ignored, attacks are carried out. And we'll talk more about the next part as, as it gets into, I'm, I'm really excited to talk, I know that this is a bad form to say, I'm really excited for next episode, because there's good stuff to talk about here, but next part is when they get into some irregular warfare, which I got some things to say about, so I'm excited to talk about that. <laughs> but for now, this is um, a couple things to note here that uh, it's uh, there's a little bit less to talk about than the last part just because the last part had so much momentous character activity and this is a bit more general um matt i'm gonna give it to you first because there's a couple things i wanted to talk about um and i've got okay. but a lot of what i want to talk about it relates to comparing this to stalingrad and some thoughts i was having as i was saying those two things is there anything you want to start off and address 
Yeah, I think for me, the probably saddest part of the whole book happens here, which is that Pierre is noted by the narrator that he has become no longer stout. Mm-hmm. And that's a sad one for our guy. That was one of his main features. Yeah, he was stout. But that does play into what I wanted to talk, to, what I wanted to talk about, <laughs> which is the asceticism that he has uh, living in this shed presumably with like the Home Depot theme song stuck in his head. <laughs> um, that's how I kind of imagined him going kind of from place to place. Sure. Sure. So there's this one chapter, I think that's kind of for me, like the core of what's happening here, at least in terms of the idea of death and the meaning of life, which is kind of <laughs> the search throughout this book. Mm-hmm. And so the, kind of paragraph goes in the burned and devastated city of moscow pierre was close to experiencing the utmost privation that a man can endure but thanks to his good health and strong constitution of which he had hardly been aware till then and still more to the fact that it was impossible to say when they began he bore his position not only lightly but joyfully and so pierre kind of it's kind of interesting the way it works for him throughout Mm. the book because he spends the whole book searching 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 trying to figure out what he's supposed to do with his life and he has this moment of clarity when he's in captivity, basically, when he is at his lowest possible point, I I think. Uh, not a good situation, to say the least. <laughs> right. Pierre, right. Um, and it's just interesting, the sort of similarities that you see. Um, I would say, like, with a lot of early Orthodox kind of saints and the sort of tradition of asceticism that kind of permeates it. Very much kind of goes in the same vein as Pierre. And it's always interesting to me to take a look at Tolstoy and be like, yeah, that's an interesting way that he kind of lines up with the church. And then you, you watch him go and you're like, oh, whoa, where did you, what, where, why did you do that? <laughs> he kind of like veers <laughs> off the path that you think he's going to go. <laughs> right. But so there's, you know, interesting, and we'll talk about a little bit more later, but this relationship to death as well. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of characters, right, as we've seen, like with Andre, sort of, you know, has this moment of clarity on like the cusp of death and this sort of asceticism. I don't know if you can compare it to that, but it's sort of not that it necessarily brings you closer to death, but it really kind of strips down all of the right, the artifice of life. And you're just left with, you know, a Home Depot theme song and a shed. <laughs> right. And maybe that's what life's about. Right. If I, I let me bring in a line here. This is something I wrote down. That the, there it is. It again, which kind of to your point about sort of accepting death in a way, or, or at least becoming more accepting. Uh, there it is. It again said Pierre to himself, and an involuntary shudder ran down his spine. In the corporal's changed face, in the sound of his voice, in the stirring and deafening noise of the drums, he recognized that mysterious, callous force which compelled people against their will to kill their fellow men. That force, the effect of which he had witnessed during the executions. To fear or to try to escape that force, to address entreaties or extortions to those who served as its tools, was useless. Pierre knew this now. One had to wait and endure. He did not again talk to the sick man, nor turn to look at him, but stood frowning by the door of the hut. So the context there is that he's trying to convince a French corporal to take along a sick prisoner instead of leaving him to die. Of course, at that point, the corporal is being driven by a larger force, than himself, and, and even though they had had previously a friendly relationship, is is turned down quite harshly, and 
Pierre recognizes in that moment that there's nothing to be done, only a situation to be endured against a larger force. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the uh, the force, and then also death for Pierre is kind of interesting because he, the, the narrator rather, says now without thinking about it, he had found that peace and inner harmony only through the horror of death, through privation, and through what he perceived in Karatayev, which. Uh, I didn't even want to get into Karatayev. I got a whole... <laughs> just, I got beef with Karatayev, I think. <laughs> right. Um, but so it kind of... You know, Pierre is kind of mimicking Tolstoy's own search in life, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, of course he is. And he's mimicking this type of character that Tolstoy really values, which is somebody who goes through life searching. And you can kind of compare to some of the things that he's done... Like when he wanted to join the Freemasons and one of the sort of precepts that he had to accept was this idea that you shouldn't fear death. And he would say, yeah, that's right. I don't fear death. I don't fear death. And then like three pages later, he would say, well, I actually am quite scared to die. And (laughs) so it's kind of interesting because now he's saying, you know, he has this realization, I guess, that you could say that he's, he isn't afraid to die. It's that, well, how do you explain it? Right. He's in the horror of death, and so to me that kind of seems like, although it does terrify him, there is right the sort of acceptance of it in some ways. And so mm-hmm. it's not that what the Masons were saying was wrong. It's just that these sort of institutions don't actually give you the way to get there. There's no real like practicality in them. And a lot of it really is just kind of <laughs> experience, I guess. Mm. Tolstoy said, go touch grass first, basically. <laughs> right. Although, I have to say, Pierre, through this part, a lot of it is him just kind of accepting the forces placed upon him and recognizing that you know these individuals are not people who can be reasoned with because they're not acting on their own... Inst- and they're, not, they're not acting on their own volition. They're acting on a volition, which is you know a, a volition of, of their, their job, their background, the things they feel they need to do, a much greater force. Um, and he kind of does accept that through a lot, but I, I let me know if you think this, my reading is off, but his part in this book ends with pierre trying to just wandering about a a camp they've made for the night as they're on the road and he accidentally almost wanders out before a guard rebuffs him sends him back inside after he sits down for a second and is quiet before he starts laughing and uh you know he thinks ha 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 laughed pierre and he said aloud to himself the soldier did not let me pass they took me and shut me up they hold me captive what me my immortal soul (laughs) ha 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 and he laughed till tears started uh, started to his eyes, which he continues laughing like that until he falls asleep. So when I was reading that, what I kind of took away was, even though to a degree he is accepting this this force and and doesn't try to push against it, at the same time existing within it, he still feels himself like, you know, they they're trying to hold my immortal soul, uh, you know, and any immortal soul captive, which is a shocking thing, but also it's like a pushback against. It feels like well, Pierre is a character who's always searching, always feels like there's something greater. And that felt like that last little bit of, I don't know, this old Pierre or this or the er Pierre, the eternal Pierre, which is always searching and, and can't believe his circumstance, which reasserts itself a little bit. Sure. Yeah, I think it's kind of, you know, bouncing back and forth between, uh, I think, right, he's sort of gone to the process of this realization, but it's still difficult when you exist within the confines of this sort of upside down world around you right it to me i was looking at that it just kind of felt like a character who 
has had some sort of awakening in a really much more organic way than he has at up to this point. But uh, all the same, there's still that kind of doubt about it, which it, to me, Tolstoy as a writer has always felt like someone who has strong ideas, but has never quite gotten over the doubt in those ideas, which always asserts itself to some degree. Um, and I, I feel like I see that in his characters who are also in that search. Yeah, I don't know that Pierre will really give you answers. I don't know that anyone will give you answers. I think that maybe is the point. I don't know. Right, right. Well, only Constantine Levin can give you those answers. Right. And which in that case really is go cut grass. <laughs> right. There's an article you were, we were speaking about before this podcast about the presence of pain yeah. and yeah. enlightenment. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, that might work well here before we go into military tactics. Let's do it. Uh, so I found this article by Gary Rosenshield called Revisiting the Dialectic of Pain and Truth, War and Peace and the Death of Ivan Illich, which is another short story by Tolstoy that's probably his most famous short story, I would say. Yeah. And obviously is an interesting comparison piece to the idea of pain and dying, because as the title suggests, it is also about a man dying. Uh, but the author of this article kind of spends a lot of time drawing the contrast between the two. And I'm not going to go over that too much just because it's not really relevant to War and Peace per se. Not what we're doing here. Though it is interesting. Um, I'll just generally kind of lay the basis of the division out, which is that in the death of Ivan Illich, the death is in, in illness and kind of vague. And Tolstoy uses it to dunk on doctors even more than he did in War and Peace. And so that's fun. But the death in War and Peace, the pain in War and Peace, it's all very much physical pain. Uh, there's not this sort of amorphous illness, which is kind of a different sort of thing. And so there are these right, great moments of realization that happen at death or on the brink of death. And Andre is kind of the primary person that is talked about in the article, although I think think you could possibly ascribe some of it to Pierre if you want to take the idea of pain and kind of like morph it into I don't know some sort of privation which you could probably argue I don't know it's not exactly as direct as like Andre getting like bashed in the head hmm. um so it's it's a little bit different and so there's a lot of interesting things in this article, and Cameron will probably, hopefully, put a link in, in the show notes. Can do. Uh, to it, just because if you're interested in reading a little bit more about Tolstoy, you might find it a little bit interesting. But So I wanted to share a couple things that I found uh, that were worth sharing from this, because I, I liked it. And so there was this really interesting part, uh, which talks about Tolstoy's sort of uh approach of realization that you get through andre and as you probably know from listening to this podcast we sort of ascribe to this idea that i guess you could you could come to without listening to us which is just that uh, tolstoy doesn't really like to generalize too much uh he likes to resist people that like to generalize he you know, as his view with history goes, right, doesn't want to ascribe things or over-ascribe them to, you know, 
great men, great actions. Uh, everything needs to be on the sort of individual, the smallest possible level, on the sort of level of this abstract force that acts on people. And so when Andre dies and he has this sort of realization, uh, the author of this article argues that Andre comes to this truth that is not for everyone. Uh, it's definitely not a truth that's meant for anybody else in the novel to actually uh, achieve. It's his own specific truth, his own specific situation. And I think that's the first important thing to note, which is that uh, I think when, you know, you're reading this book and like, all right, Tolstoy's going to tell me about the meaning of life. Well, you're really going to be disappointed when you get to the end because he's not. And the characters that he does give the meaning of life to, uh, it's super interesting because, uh, again, as the author notes, that for the most part, I would say all of us reading are healthy. Uh, we are at least not on the brink of death, hopefully. Uh, and so we resist this identification w with Andre. So in this novel, which is exceptionally realistic, you sort of get what happens in Dostoevsky, which we talked about in Crime and Punishment, uh, which is you get this instance which is an extreme, but logically possible. So kind of like similar almost to chance in some ways and this is how you kind of arrive at a higher truth and we talked about this a lot in our crime and punishment series with a lot of people that are smarter than uh me for sure so <laughs> take a look at that one if you're interested in that idea um and so it's you know it's kind of interesting right because he takes this idea of of the individual the specific and then he goes out and he right applies it to these things which are very extreme um but in the realm of possibility and so that's kind of difficult when you're reading, <laughs> when the normal person is reading a novel, even if you were alive at this time, you still probably wouldn't be able to really relate to that death, uh, having not been on the brink of death from a military battle for the most part. And so that is one of these sort of uh, things that's kind of interesting and, you know, Maybe you'll relate to that, and maybe this point is moot in that case. Uh, but so, kind of the, the gist of the article, right, continues to go on about how, right, great points of moral clarity can be found in, like, times of extreme physical pain. And that's just something to kind of pay attention to throughout the novel. And if I were to tell you why that is the case, I don't know. Read the article, see if you... <laughs> <laughs> see if you find the conclusion on that i think it's kind of just like a it's like a tolstoyan quirk i don't think it's like necessarily uh like tolstoy isn't telling you to go out and hurt yourself to achieve moral clarity like that's you have to get shot in the head by a musket ball in order to... yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no it's just like an interesting quirk of hmm. tolstoy and how he like views that path along to to clarity which is you know it's interesting and and kind of relevant to this part more relevant perhaps to the andre part you know i think could potentially be applied to pierre depending on how you're going to to think about it well i mean it makes sense i i only skimmed the article that matt sent so what i'm going to say is not at all based on the article but at, at the times of extreme pain mostly for andre but also does apply to pierre somewhat it also applies during periods when the normal order is put out of well, put out of order basically where the normal fight his duties as a staff officer, at least for Andre, are suddenly put aside. Now he's got to go on a different path than he intended before after getting shot in the head or, right, all these other 
every other time mm-hmm. he comes close to death, close to pain, that's when power of, of himself to determine his own destiny, destiny is taken away and instead put in a greater, I don't know, in the hands of, of the world itself, the world historical clock of people and the random chances that happen in between, um, which is not a very literary point. But I, you do see, I, to your point about characters experiencing pain, I think it also goes along with characters experiencing uh, a profound loss of agency too. And in those mm-hmm. moments, seeing things which they wouldn't necessarily have been able to see, wouldn't wouldn't necessarily have seen when they had, at, at the very least, the illusion that they're in control of their lives. I think it is a literary point because it links to this quote that I did want to mention but couldn't find a good segue, so thank you, <laughs> uh, which is also from the same passage on Pierre just like two pages later, hmm. where he says that the very qualities that had been a source of embarrassment, if not actually disadvantageous to him in the world in which he lived, his strength, his thickness, his disdain for the comforts of life, his absent-mindedness and simplicity among these people, uh, among these people gave him almost the status of a hero. And Pierre felt that their regard imposed responsibilities on him. Mm. Interesting, right? That a lot of what we're kind of reading about in this collapse of war into peace is, right, sort of taking a, a look at society and trying to get rid of illusion. So, right times of extreme pain, times mm. of extreme upheaval can sort of reset the values of the individuals that are living through that time and can kind of help us reset what those values should be. Because I think Tolstoy understood, and I think a lot of us understand that just, right, these things that, you know, we might value, that we might think are good qualities are not valued in society, mm-hmm. broadly speaking. And so I think that book, that book, that old book, that old thing, (laughs) I think that this book is trying to make an attempt at sort of reclaiming some of those values Hmm. in those extremely difficult times, which is honestly so much harder to do than it seems. Because if you try to apply that to like now, oh, as Pierre says, it imposed certain responsibilities on you. And I don't like those responsibilities. (laughs) Right. I mean... Yeah, that is a good point. We talked many, many episodes ago about how contrasting war and peace reveals sometimes how ridiculous many of these features of peace are, how much like war is this attempt at showcasing whatever your wealth, your status, your eligibility, so on and such forth, creates this, I won't say artificial, I guess it has its own internal logic, which makes sense for its own case. Uh, but of course, Tolstoy has a lot of problems with it, which I don't think I need to cite any evidence of that one. I think if you've gotten that far, you might have gotten good. that. You might have gotten that notion from reading. Now, this collapse of war and the peace not only does it reveal some of the the comedy of society, and also you know how false many of these things are, that are put forth as the thing to do, the thing to be, but also now that you're getting into bare essentials, you're getting down to basically like who can you rely on who can be your voice who can be a source of strength who can be whatever it is you know all these things that pierre ends up being in this moment of like you know qualities i think you could that tolstoy is pointing out as not specific qualities but vaguely like oh yeah this this vague general area of i don't know honesty and whatever else you want to describe to it being the really important things that when you get down to it um this collapsing of the order you'll find people will really turn back to, which is it's a pretty optimistic view, I guess, of, of people, and, and certainly one that I think you could agree or disagree with. But um, It could be. I don't know. I kind of have this issue when I read Tolstoy, which 
pretty much everybody agrees that he's just a moralizer. Sure. And he definitely is in some parts. However, I just think he's too vague to really be moralizing in a lot of other areas. Right. Well, he doesn't always like these qualities that Pierre has. It's kind of elaborated on but also not really it's so vague yeah. yeah i know like it is i mean it is moralizing but it's not necessarily to the point of being like programmatic you know what i mean right I, tolstoy is i think a consummate moralizer but a moralizer who doesn't always who is self-aware enough to say i don't think i have all the answers i just think you know the answers are there to have and i think i've got a vague sense of where they are but not so sure sure not so confident in it that he's not gonna write in characters who also undercut that with legitimate criticism or will not specifically lay out certain things which he maybe doesn't feel that comp didn't feel that confident in writing down as these are the good qualities sure sure so are we talking about the war let's talk about the war so i want to talk and i know we've covered this time many times before but i want to take the way that we think of individuals as having an effect in the world especially people like napoleon's and i want to con- compare against stalingrad um and if you've gotten this far, you've heard us talk about Stalingrad a million times, and I hope you've listened to our series on Stalingrad or uh, have at least or, or have read the book. But if you haven't, you know, it's about World War II. Uh, the author, Vasily Grossman, very much wanted to write a war and peace of World War II. That's not us saying it's kind of like that. That is very literally what happened <laughs> he very famously uh, says that he only read War and Peace during this time and and and. Um, it is a very conscious attempt. And it is, like we mentioned before, it feels like, intentionally or not, these two dialogues are in, these two, excuse me, these two novels are in dialogue oftentimes. So Tolstoy many, many times over will make the point that these big heroes of history really, in fact, don't have that much agency. They're reacting to the forces that act upon them, no matter how much we may try to look back and say that they they did, in fact, do these things as if they personally had wielded the hammer. Um, in which, if I can, I'll read a quick line here because I thought it was a funny bit. Historians quite falsely represent Napoleon's faculties as having weakened in Moscow and do so only because the results did not justify his actions. He employed all his ability and strength to do the best he could for himself and his army as he had done previously and as he did subsequently in 1813. His activity at the time was no less astounding than it was in Egypt, in Italy, in Austria, and in Prussia. We do not know for certain in how far his genius was genuine in Egypt, where 40 centuries looked down upon his grandeur, for his exploits there were told to us by Frenchmen. We cannot accurately estimate his genius at Austria or Prussia, for we have to draw our information from French or German sources, and the incomprehensible surrender of our whole corps without fighting and of fortresses without a siege must incline Germans to recognize his genius as the only explanation of the war carried on in Germany. But we, thank God, have no need to recognize his genius in order to hide our shame. We have paid for the right to look at the matter plainly and simply, and we will not abandon that right. So what he's he's laying out here is what followed of... of you know napoleon uh, retreating from moscow this this great route is not any particular genius of the russian imperial generals or any particular weakness in napoleon they were all acting as they were always going to and we've made this point before i don't like need to go into it too much but i want to contrast it against the opening scene of stalingrad which begins in i forget exactly the town somewhere in italy where hitler is in a meeting with uh, benito mussolini and and their staff officers and it goes through their plans to to invade the Soviet Union. The operation is Operation Barbarossa. But because, keep in mind that Stalingrad was not written as a mid-war novel. Stalingrad is written as a sort of victory lap around the, around the Nazis' <laughs> sort of attempt to memorialize the dead of the war. There's a line that stuck out to me 
that uh, I've been thinking about. And I wish I could have read the whole passage again, but unfortunately I've lent out my copy of Stalingrad. Um, that one of the reasons why Vasily Grossman says Hitler was destined to fail is because he was unable to conceive that his fist could not smash through everything. Up to that point, his fist has been able to smash you know, the working classes of the, and the minorities of, of Germany and other nations. He's been able to smash through Poland, you know, smash through into France. But it's coming up against the will of a people, that is when the fist is going to break. Um, in this case, again, keep in mind that to some degree Stalingrad is a, is a bit propagandistic. Um, I don't mean that in a derisive way. Tolstoy, Vasily Grossman meant it in a very genuine kind of way. Mm-hmm. But I think it's interesting that because you've got these two novels, which are in many ways in dialogue, and of course, these are two authors writing to their times. Tolstoy's trying to make his his overall point, which has been made to us many times. But Grossman does seem to give the great man not unlimited power, but a sense of power. I think this is an interesting differentiation that he gives them, but a sense of power which is limited. In this case, Grossman's writing specifically within the Soviet context. So yeah, of course, within these you know this the, these capitalist fascist regimes, you're going to have people who are going to take through and smash through the will of the people because they're separated, they don't have power. So yes, the fist can rule. However, not in you know the Soviet Union where there's the will of the people. Um, and you know he's often throughout the novel portrays the fight as one of not just a war but a truly existential war. Which for yeah many of the people in the Soviet Union as Slavs or, or Jews or other races that were not particularly races and heavy quotes there thought well of by the Germans it was a bit <laughs> pretty existential um, but it, it's an interesting I think it's an interesting difference that for novels that are so like in so many other ways that there's this like really fundamental difference in how you know these the quote unquote great men are portrayed it, it, part of it does go to again the the times they're writing from and the, the perspectives they're writing from. But I just thought that was an interesting difference, especially because this is something that Tolstoy harps on so much in War and Peace for that to be such a divergence in uh, Stalingrad. Yeah, I do think they're an interesting comparison point. And we should maybe just do an episode that's just like comparing these two because <laughs> I liked them so much. You know, despite the fact that he was trying to do 20th century War and Peace, it does come out just <laughs> quite different, honestly. Mm-hmm. I think that Stalingrad and... The wonderful edition that Robert Chandler had put together was probably, say, the closest to War and Peace, for sure. Mm -hmm. But you do also have to imagine that he did intend for the Stalingrad section and Life and Fate to be, you know, together. And Life and Fate is not anything at all like War and Peace. It is like (laughs) night and day, I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's, it's just, I don't know endless interest for me on the comparison there and you can't make me stop talking about it because <laughs> i read it we put all the effort in i mean i think it because there is how do i phrase this there are valid points of comparison to be made there was a lot of uh of war and peace that informs how grossman writes it however just to say it's a world war ii you know war and peace is kind of a lazy intellectual comparison because it it foregoes so many of the interesting differences of the like you know this essential like this point of you know great men being merely the puppets of history is so integral to war and peace and it's it's not it's not important to stalingrad it's not an important intellectual point to make it's discarded in favor of in this case the you know the will of the people so to speak the the fact that they'll all come together to stop this uh, they've got you know one big union to tear the fascists down which is interesting in its own ways but you know uh, beyond some interesting ways that they do align also, I think it's fascinating to look at how their own eras 
fundamentally reshaped a lot of the intellectual content of those books. Also, the way that the the route is portrayed, you know, much of Stalingrad has to do with Stalingrad. Arguable whether that was the most important victory, military victory of the war. I think actually more historians would probably argue it isn't based on the reading I've done. You know, a lot more people mm-hmm. might point that towards the the route in 1941 before the the Nazi army got to the, the Wehrmacht got to Moscow as the first real victory of the war or to Kursk, which is the largest tank battle in human history, uh, both victories for the Soviets. Those might have been much more important battles militarily, uh, you know, for uh, tactically and strategically. But Stalingrad is the first time that the, the Soviet army stops retreating and has a victory, which allows them to start pushing the Wehrmacht back. Um, it's a really it's a significant moral victory. And I, and I want to bring that up because this is something I'll be touched on a little bit more in the next part that Tolstoy is really dealing with. Uh, OK, so <laughs> uh, uh, the, the Napoleon and the French have captured Moscow, this capital, which should be as the rule of law, the, the, the laws of war dictate would be the end of it. Should be it should be the case that this this nation then, you know, got down on its knees because it's lost the war. But in fact, the laws of war didn't carry apply in this case, as they often don't apply. And we despite capturing the capital, they still had to undertake a retreat. And it was actually the capture of the capital that led to the to this, in many ways, inferior army being able to overtake them. And one of the major things that manages to overtake, uh, uh, that helps them overtake the French army, is uh, a rising morale in the Imperial Russian army, which doesn't come from any particular source, but there's something much more indefinable that then destroys the morale of the French army, which I think in a lot of ways overlaps with the morale of the Soviet army being the feature that allows them to really win this fight at Stalingrad. However, again, the difference here is that Tolstoy is like, I don't really know where their morale comes from. It's an X factor, as we'll talk more about next time. But, you know, of course, Grossman being like, yeah, the, the, the X factor is, is the Soviet, you know, the Soviet homeland yeah. and our ideas yeah. of the people. Yeah. Although I do think Tolstoy has something in here. I would have pulled the quote if I knew we were going to talk about this, but I do think he has a line about the Russian homeland. Uh, yeah, I, would, I wouldn't be surprised. I need to double check. It's clearly not as strong of a point of emphasis. Right. If I don't really remember the, <laughs> the full quote, but I know he has something in there about that when he's talking about why can't Kutuzov hold back his own troops mm-hmm. while everyone's pretty mad as they're chasing the friends out of their country. Right. Yeah, no, that, that, that is a, a, a good point to bring up. But So a point of comparison, but for Tolstoy, something that clearly takes a backseat. Tolstoy uh, mm-hmm. was many things. Uh, a strong nationalist was definitely not one of them. Uh, no. Does nationalist themes come through in his writing? I think that's arguable, and even points out he's pointing to yes, but no more than any writer and any major writer in any empire in history. So, yeah. Anything else you want to you want to touch upon? I just as I'm going through this part, this this war for me, like you, I've enjoyed Stalingrad so much. It's naturally drawing those comparisons as I go through. Um, I also, I do want to I do think it's funny. I, at least in the when he's talking about Napoleon. And him saying, well, do we really know how certain his genius is? Can we really trust the sources? We, we only have the French to know. <laughs> we just have to trust the French in that one. Trust us, guys. It was really cool. And Tolstoy undercutting <laughs> it with, like, keep in mind, you know, Egypt is, Egypt was old before we existed. Just so <laughs> Egypt was an ancient empire at the time that our civilization was just getting started. 40 centuries looked down upon us. But the French told us they were really, this was a genius campaign. I, it was. I don't have anything on major point to make there. I just thought that was funny, his him him introducing that doubt. I 
don't have much more to go on about. There was one Tolstoyan wisdom, but I don't know if I have it in me. <laughs> you don't have any, any to share more Tolstoyan wisdom, one of the most important things to convey? Fine. You've convinced me. From Kutuzov's point of view, he knew the apple must not be picked while it is still green. It will fall of itself when ripe. But if you pick it unripe, you spoil the apple in the tree and set your teeth on edge. Great example of the so-called Tolstoyan wisdom mm-hmm. that... I, I don't know. <laughs> Is it really mean anything? I, the, the more that I like, kind of pick these out, the more I start to have issues with them. Right. Because I think people, again... I think like this is not the point to take from Tolstoy. <laughs> Are these like cute little sayings? Sure, but it's pithy. But it is. It is. But it doesn't. It doesn't mean anything. Sure. Yeah. Oftentimes, pithy sayings mean very little. That's my. That's also my problem with Karatayev, which is, you know, like I know that Tolstoy is trying to say that these sort of sayings come from some sort of innate knowledge uh, and experience that comes through living etc etc but it just i don't know doesn't really do it for me that's fair just i think that you could also create a saying which is like the sort of antithesis to this within tolstoy's own logic as well Mm -hmm. that's all i gotta say on it yeah i mean i think that continues through that outside of maybe Constantine Levin. I've never encountered a Tolstoy character who ever kind of arrives at something and was like, well, this is it. I figured it out. Sure, sure, sure. Everyone's sure. always in constant quest. So maybe to your point about how these sayings really mean very little, uh, certainly no character who, characters who have these little pithy sayings may be held up as virtues of wisdom. But I mean, we've certainly never had a character who gets an in-depth, <laughs> gets a gets a real sense of interiority in these novels who says these pity things they're eternally looking for that truth with which they don't find certainly not in these little peasant wisdoms as much as tolstoy does like yeah, to hold up that as a virtue it's interesting because like yeah like you can't you can't give these to anyone nobody listens to these right you can't tell you couldn't give this saying from one character to any other in the novel and have them <laughs> do anything useful or beneficial for themselves with it. You know what I mean? Right. And so it kind of like negates the whole idea of wisdom in the novel. It's telling that whenever this does appear, it has no effect on the characters who hear it, which are usually the ones on that uh, no, intellectual exactly, journey. Exactly. That's my point. And so I think sometimes people nowadays when they talk about war and peace, and that's why I'm just saying you got to be careful where you get your war and peace information because there's a lot of naughties out there. And they'll t- they'll take some <laughs> crap like this and just like use it to back up whatever you know like they're laying down. Sure. And I'm just here to tell you that because I'm not laying anything down with it, except to say, don't listen to every peasant saying <laughs> that is thrown your way. <laughs> We're here to be your own personal Tolstoy, which is to tell you that we don't really know, but we can tell you what we don't believe. <laughs> we can we can give you education through the negative. Yes, we can neg you educationally (laughs) i do (laughs) want to bring back one of the very the funniest examples of exactly what you're talking about which is and we haven't talked about this since the anacranina series uh, on on the podcast but there's a line which we made fun of at the time and if you haven't listened to our anacranina series you should go back so you can get the full context for this (laughs) just one big ad for our other series yeah well you know it's it's you always got to stay on that grind um but the the line is you know, you uh, you want everything to be you know perfectly simple, but in fact, 
you know, the world, ex- I forget exactly what it is. Like the world exists in shades of gray. That's where like the spice of life is essentially. No, all the beauty of life is made up of light and shadow. Perfect. Thank you. Exactly. Yep. And we saw that posted many, many times as a general, like, isn't life beautiful? Isn't life complex? It's it's not as one note as you think it is, but of course, in context, that is Steva defending him relentlessly, relating, uh, defending himself against the charge that you shouldn't cheat on your wife. <laughs> yeah, that is him saying uh, you yeah. believe you have this simple view that you shouldn't cheat on your wife relentlessly, but life is made up of light and shadow. Eleven, I need to come clean about something. Sure, you know? I own a print that has that on it. <laughs> And I knew it when I bought it. Right. I still bought it because I, you know, there's not a lot of good looking Russian literature. Sure. Art design things out there. It's either that or the same Dostoevsky was a beautiful save the world uh, on abstract designs you see in every third kitschy hotel you go to. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Not as beautiful as your home goods Trotsky quote. <laughs> no, but, no. Uh, it's out there. <laughs> I, I will link. To, oh, God. So if you don't, man, I found it. Home Good sells a Leon Trotsky <laughs> print. <laughs> I will link to a, somewhere, a, a, a website where you can buy it. Truly a perfect moment. I don't know if I've ever covered it in the podcast before. I'm sure we have, but, oh, God, that is beautiful. That is beautiful. Yeah. Uh, but, yes. So yeah. I kind of, like, I don't know, thinking more and more about this because I didn't really notice or care that much about it, but the more I think about it, the more I wonder like to what degree Tolstoy undermines his own project. Mm-hmm. And if that's the point of the Tolstoyan project, it's well, just one constant undermining of everything that you thought to have been true. Tolstoy can't help but undermine everything. You know, no matter how certain he is of his own ideas, he can't help but undermine it. His ideas, other people's ideas, it's just it's better for better or worse. He's someone he's pretty good at being critical. <laughs> well, yeah, we said at the beginning of this that he has a problem with all of us, but really he has a problem with himself. <laughs> <laughs> see this uh is if tolstoy had gone to a therapist we would have missed out on some of the world's greatest literature <laughs> therapy ruined Tolstoy. <laughs> <laughs> anyhow well yeah not this is not an anti-therapy show to be clear maybe just been, anti-doctor just <laughs> 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 yeah i think that's that covers all the major parts of this section of the book probably We'll be back in the future to tell you that we missed something, though. Right. Yeah. Well, there is always something that we have missed. There's so much going on here. Um, But for now, Matt, I got to ask you, uh, before we head on out, first of all, what are we covering next week? Next week, book four, part three. Be there. All right. Perfect. Nice. Simple. I like it. Uh, Secondarily, I know you did not bring a drink to this, uh, but I do have to ask ask if you have a pithy quote of the week. Yes, part two, chapter one. Mm -hmm. And anyone, even a dull-witted boy of 13, could have guessed that the most advantageous position for the army after its retreat from Moscow in 1812 was on the Kaluga Road. So it is impossible to understand, first, what conclusions led historians to discern some profound wisdom in this maneuver. There you go. Your wisdom sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. I like it. And uh, how are you on on the other end? Well, of the land pond for me. Like I led, the this is an impossibly low ABV stout. So after a mere a one, I am actually myself at a one. Um, Whoa. Which is fine, because I am also extremely tired. If you listen to last week's episode, you will understand why I'm tired. Uh, so 
<laughs> after spending yeah. spending many many days at work and then also another full day at the at a dealership for inexplicable reasons to me at least mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. yeah i am i am ready to have a a day of just maybe a little coffee and nothing else yeah but um, that'd be nice and before we let you go, we wanted to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons. Nell Nell Cool J, Christina, Marin, JG, Banana Karenina, Danielle, Margarita, Yulia, Amanda, John, Natalie, Ben, James, Elizabeth, Shannon, Blake, Amanda, Maya, Pack Rob, Zachary, Austin, Isaac, Brett, Caitlin, Eli, Stephanie, Alex, Yitza, Mysterious Donor Dude, Elise, Allison, Brandon, Arini, Lou, Jesse, Paige, Daniel, Darren, Daniel, Janice, Anne, Madeline, and Jeff. Podcasting isn't free and grad school doesn't pay very well, so if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the show running, take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash And the music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at Tipsy Tolstoy Podcast, on Twitter at Tipsy Tolstoy, or you can join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon. Bye.